0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to Cutting Chai Stories, write copy that feels good. It's the no-fluff copywriting podcast that teaches you to write copy you can feel good about and gets you more clients along the way. I'm your host, Jayati Bora, and I'm here to give you a shot of masala for your writing. A way for business owners like you to write copy your way, in your voice, with practical writing tips you can put into action right away. Let's find your words together. Did you know that the Inuit have over 50 different words for snow? Anthropologist Frank Boaz travelled to northern Canada in the late 1800s to study the life of the local people. And in his 1911 book, Handbook of American Indian Languages, he talks about the dozens of different words that the Inuit have for snow. Though that claim has been controversial for a while now, Some believe he was exaggerating or was sloppy in his research. There's reason to believe he was right. There's a 2012 New Scientist article that explains it. And I'll link to the piece in the show notes. But according to the New Scientist, the Inuit dialect spoken in Canada's Nunavik region has at least 53, that means 53 different words for snow, including matsaruti for wet snow that can be used to ice a sleigh's runners, and pukak, for the crystalline powder snow that looks like salt. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but I've never heard it said aloud, so please forgive me if I am. According to a linguist at the University of North Texas, these people need to know whether ice is fit to walk on or whether you will sink through it. It's a matter of life or death. Not every name is a matter of life and death, but it makes sense that if you live in a bitterly cold place where there's a lot of snow and ice, You need to be able to distinguish between the different conditions of that snow and ice when you step outside. That's the same reasoning behind naming things yourself as a creator, a service provider, a teacher, as someone who has their own methodology, their own way of doing things, their own framework. If you're a regular listener of this show, you probably know that I was born and brought up in India and only moved to New York in my mid 20s. And when I first encountered American culture, I used to be bewildered by the resumes and the job titles and the way that people talked about what they did. It seemed to me to be self-aggrandizing. Because when you took the jargon and the fancy words out of the job titles, they seemed normal, regular, like something I could do myself. Here are some examples, okay? Not of the things that I heard when I first came to the country, but just examples of the kind of thing I was talking about. The Genius Bar in Apple stores. For the service technicians you take your laptop to when a key gets stuck. Tech Desk sounds way less imposing and impressive than the Genius Bar, right? Capital G, capital B, by the way. When someone says they work at the Genius Bar, and if you're not sure exactly what that is, well, you'd be kind of intimidated by them, right? If they worked at something called a Genius Bar, does that mean they're a genius? Whatever that means. Here's another job title. Director of First Impressions. I admit I've never actually encountered this one. Do you have any guesses as to what that refers to? It's a fancy pants way of saying receptionist. It's also more fun. And on my LinkedIn page, I'm guilty of that myself. Some time back, I changed my title from whatever it was, I can't even remember, to Director of Badassery at Cutting Jai Stories. So obviously, I'm not saying this is an uncrossable line, in fact, I'm all in favor of fun. But there's a difference in tone. When you're having fun with it, as opposed to making it sound bigger, or as if it has more responsibility than it does. Last example. Revenue protection officer for a ticket inspector. When you say someone is a ticket inspector, well, if you've ever had to buy a ticket aboard the bus or the train, you know exactly what that means. When you say someone is a revenue protection officer instead, well, that could mean anything. That could mean the person works at a collection agency and chases unpaid bills. I mean, maybe it means accountant, right? It's not plain speaking. So this is the kind of thing that bewildered me when I first moved to the United States. I simply could not understand why people didn't speak plainly, especially when it came to work. Then there's also the business speak the industry jargon that masks the meaning of words, or, as I call it, is the sign of a lazy mind. If you have to say the same thing in plain English, in a way that a 5th or a 6th grader would understand, you would have to think and explain the concept simply, and that's harder than it looks, especially when you're used to the jargon. I'm still not a fan of this kind of self-aggrandizing or lazy language, but I've come around to the idea of finding new words to describe things like the Inuit. Back in my early 20s, I would not have understood the need to name a particular framework or methodology. I can't say for sure, but I might have thought it was unnecessary or extra. But now I understand that without the words to refer to what you're talking about, you can create confusion and a lot more. If you're an Inuit and you need a way to explain to your friend the conditions of the snow outside the village, If you simply do not have a word for it that both you and your friend might understand, your friend might go out and be unprepared for what she might find and that really might be a matter of life and death. For the rest of us, maybe it's not dangerous to not have the words, but it hampers our ability to communicate. Here's another example of this. If you speak multiple languages, sometimes don't you find that you have a word for something in one language that simply doesn't exist in another? So in Hindi, for example, there's this word jagad. The closest translation of it in English that I can think of is a creative workaround, jerry-rigging something. It's adjusting or making do, but usually in a way that's unexpected or low-cost. So an example of jagad might be, instead of buying a float for a kid who's learning to swim, tying two empty 1-liter plastic bottles together and tying the whole contraption around the kid's waist right? It uses what's already there. It's low cost. It's makeshift. It's a little more than that. Or, and I actually saw fishermen do this outside Cartagena in Colombia, using empty soda bottles as markers of location for crab traps because they float. That is doing jagad. Here's another word also in Hindi. In Indian classical music, there's this concept of jugalbandi. It's when two solo musicians who are usually playing different instruments when they have kind of an improvised duet. It's like a playful competition. When one musician plays a tune on, say, a sarangi, which is a string instrument, and then the tabla player, and the tabla is a kind of a drum, imitates that and puts his or her spin on it. You see this in action in jazz performances too sometimes. In Goa, where I'm recording this podcast from, there's this other word, susegad. It means a relaxed, laid-back, really chilled-out approach to life. There's no equivalent translation in English or even in Hindi that I can think of. And that is associated with Goan lifestyle and culture, their way of life. Then there's the Japanese term wabi-sabi, which refers to finding beauty in impermanence or in imperfection. Or in the Swedish concept of higga, which is now widely known. If you did not have words for these ideas, it would be really hard to communicate them or it would be really tedious. If every time I had to speak of something that was really jugadu, if I had to say a creative workaround that's also cheaper and unexpected, uh, people would stop listening. It's the same reason why, in articles where sources are unnamed, you'll often see a line like this. A close friend, who I'll call Mina, said. Especially if the source is going to be named multiple times in a single story, it's easier to remember And to keep them straight, then keep saying a close friend, a close friend who shall not be named over and over again. Also, the kind of name you choose creates expectations. The name of a thing creates a picture. It influences the perception of what it is before your audience even has its first interaction with your creation. Suppose you owned a bar and you called it Rooftop Rendezvous. First-time visitors would have a different kind of expectation of it than if it was called Backyard Alley or beach vibes. Finally, naming something is super powerful. Kelly Deals, who's a coach and a feminist theorist, explained this really well in an email to her list. She wrote, and I'm quoting that email here, In transformative traditions, movements, feminism, academia, we name things. We use language and even invent words and portmanteaus to make what was invisible, visible. Note. A portmanteau is a word that's made out of parts of two existing words that are jammed together. For example, frappuccino, which is a combination of frappe and cappuccino. Or motel, which comes from motor and hotel. Or hangry, which is hungry and angry. You get the point. Okay, back to her email. We use language and even invent words and portmanteaus to make what was invisible, visible. When we do this, what was nebulous becomes concrete what was personal becomes political, and vice versa. And then Deals gives some examples of what she's talking about. Quote, Rape culture, gaslighting, derailing, microaggressions. Having words for a thing means we can perceive it and resist it. We now have the language to talk about it with each other and internally and collectively fortify ourselves against it. Calling a thing, a thing, capital A, capital T, is a power move. End quote. This is not my language, this is all by Kelly Deals, and I'll link to her website in the show notes you can follow her if this interests you. All of which is to say, that if you have a unique methodology of teaching your craft, a framework that you came up with, that condenses all your years of experience in a one-month course, a way of doing something that combines industry knowledge with knowledge from, say, some long-forgotten quilting technique that no one else is doing, this methodology, this framework, all of that might be a good candidate for a new name, a name you invent. That's it from me today. I hope I've given you some food for thought. If you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something from it, or even had a good chuckle, won't you leave this podcast a review? It helps other listeners like you discover cutting-try stories, and it helps me to know what you found helpful, what you enjoyed, or what you'd like more of. Thanks again for tuning in, and till I see you again next Thursday, brainstorm some new names!